So let's pray and then, uh, and then we'll get into it. Hey Lord, we thank you, loving God, our Father, that you have, uh, as we've just sat and we've just had communion and we've shared in the reality that you have called us into this family by your Son, that through his death uh, and his resurrection, our sin is dealt with, we have been given a new life, you have called us into that reality and here we are to gather around you and your word that we will look into now and and to be encouraged uh, with your people, and it is a joyful thing, and we are glad that we can do it. Lord, open our hearts today as we look into this conversation about prayer. Uh, would your spirit lead us and guide us in truth, that it would enrich our lives for our joy and for your glory. A, um, a little while ago, we did a survey um, out there, or a forum, a church forum, and in that church forum, uh, out of that survey, some outcomes came. And one of those outcomes uh, was that, that you said you wanted more access, you said you wanted more opportunity, and that you wanted more teaching on prayer, which we were very excited about. So we keep reminding you all the time that Saturday morning, first Saturday of the month, we gather here for prayer at 8.30. Uh, and that's going to be good. We're, we're, we're looking forward to you coming and turning up to that. Now, added to that, what we're going to do uh, for the next three weeks is we're going to be looking at the, uh, the place and the practice and the importance of prayer within the Christian life. Um, we're going to be doing that here on Sunday. That's what we're going to be preaching through. Now that sentence uh, and that series, if you like, is, is kind of almost a bit redundant in, in saying it, in its necessity, because I think, uh, and you haven't been totally in participation this morning, but I think you're warming up, but if I was to ask you, uh, what is one, what is one of the most important practices of your Christian faith? I'm pretty sure you would all say, "Yeah, yeah, we're warming up, kind of like it," and we have it as one of our so-called key values that we would be that we would be fervently prayerful, that we would be a church that just is passionate about prayer, that delights in prayer. That's what the word fervent means. We want to be fervently prayerful. And the reason that you would say that and the reason that we would have it as a key value is because of the, just the prolific activity of prayer in the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, throughout the New Testament, we see the activity of prayer mentioned nearly 400 times. Plus the fact that Jesus, who, who models life for us, who we, who we say we're living our lives uh, following, pursuing, uh, trying to be more and more like, he began his earthly ministry in prayer, he was sustained in prayer and he was in prayer as he died. So intellectually and theoretically and instructionally and a couple of other leads, you all know uh, that prayer is an essential part of the, of the Christian life, that, that, that it's just what the Christian does. And as a great uh, reformer, Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And Martin Luther was one that practiced what he preached, uh, saying and is recorded to have done, and is, is recorded of saying, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. And we kind of know that. If we're not praying, that's where road rage comes from and things like that. But there he is, two hours in the morning. I have so much business that I can't get on without spending three hours Daily in prayer. He's so busy, got so much to do for the Lord that he needs to spend three hours a day in prayer. So why is it that most of us are more like uh, C.S. Lewis's comments? 
than we are like Martin Luther. C.S. Lewis said, prayer is irksome. Now, Tom, you're from England, irksome. English word? Prayer is irksome. An excuse to omit prayer is never unwelcome. When it's over, this casts a feeling of relief over the rest of the day. We are reluctant to begin. We are delighted to finish. If prayer is the lifeblood of the, of the Christian faith, why are so many of us so unwilling to live, so willing, sorry, to live in such a poor quality of life? Why is prayer irksome? Why is it so hard, uh, so hard to get to? Why is it that only ten to eight people turn up here of a Saturday morning? Do we need to be told better techniques? Do we need better practices? Do we need to find a more convenient times? Should I, for the next 30 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever I've got you here for, just kind of guilt you back into a life of prayer, showing you uh, how, your kind of, how your prayer life fails in comparison to the lives that we find in the Bible, the lives of like Paul, who again is someone who's, who's, whose Christian life began in prayer, was sustained in prayer, and at Paul's death he's still praying kind of fails in comparison to the life of Jesus who prayed until blood literally ran from the pores of his skin. Fails in comparison to people like Martin Luther, so busy he has to pray for three hours a day and guilt you and I. Uh, and in our begrudging submission, we resolve to pray like, like no one has ever prayed before. So as you leave here and you go back home and, and you have lunch today, all of a sudden out pops a small homily on your appreciation for food and God's extraordinary provision of, of fast food stores along the Pean Highway. And then as you go to bed tonight, you set your alarm for 4am because you're so busy, right, that you've just got to get up and pray for two hours before you get out the door. And you can maintain that until about... Wednesday and then your guilt driven motivation runs out right and then what we're left with is discouragement and prayer is irksome again and the cycle goes on and guilt and begrudging duty are hardly sustainable motivators for prayer apart from Jesus when he gives us direct instruction on prayer When the New Testament writers want to encourage us to pray, they don't tell us about techniques. They don't don't, uh, hold up comparisons or anything like that. There's no big guilt trip. When they want us to pray, they tell us about God, what he has done for us, how he is the great architect, the great accomplisher and, and, and applier of his grace to us. Because as Sam Elbury points out, Prayer is defined not so much by what we do, but by who God is. And even Jesus, in his instructions in, in Matthew 6, you know, in the Lord's Prayer and in Luke 11, even those instructions are framed up deeply with, with relational frameworks of a God, of who, who God is and, and what he does for our well-being. In the Bible, Sam Elbury continues, prayer is the natural response to the God who has revealed himself to, to us, who's made himself known to us. If we need help in our prayer lives, the best thing that we can do is to remind ourselves of to whom we are actually praying. 
if we are clear on God, that will help us pray. Makes sense, doesn't it? How you view God will determine how we pray. If God is for us, we will seek after him. We will, we will flee to him. We, we will want to be in his presence. But if God is moody, needy, even malevolent, we will only come to God when we think we can please him or, or, or pacify him or because we're just that desperate. So because understanding God is critical to prayer and because several of you actually asked about the role of the Trinity in prayer, that's, that's where we're starting in our series. A God who is Trinitarian encourages us and gives us the grounds to pray precisely because he is a Trinitarian God. Only this God invites us into and provides the means to relate to him in prayer. A Trinitarian view uh, of, of God is one of the most fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Well, it's, it's really difficult to articulate and, and people have tried to articulate it with those poxy kind of ideas of you know, God's like an egg, he's a shell, he's a yolk, he's a, or he's like a triple point of water or, or whatever they are. The fact is we don't have a tidy comparison for what a Trinitarian God looks like, as if you could somehow uh, represent the grandeur and the greatness and the complexity of God with a created object like an egg. It's kind of absurd, really, and probably a little offensive. What we do have, though, is Scripture, and in Scripture, God self-discloses himself as, as one God who exists in a perfect community that interacts with himself and creation as three divinely equal but distinct personhoods. Here is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. As Christians, we reject the idea of an individual God who, who created as a demonstration of power and might. Perhaps say like a Zeus who just kind of throws lightning bolts at you or anyone who challenges his power. You know, a, a bit of a needy God, a bit of a, a show-off, a bit of come and look at how awesome I am. We reject the idea of a God that is a, a singularity, like a deity that, that's found in, in Islam. We reject the idea of a God who is an impersonal force, like something you'd find in Star Wars universe or, or Avatar uh, or the Lion King's you know, circle of life. We reject the idea that, that warring, frustrated deities are responsible for our existence, like we in the Babylonian and, and the Assyrian stories and accounts of creation and we reject the idea of a pantheon of gods, in particular uh, tritheism, such as found in the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, that the three persons of God you find in the Bible are actually three separate gods. No, the God of Christianity that emerges from the Bible is a Godhead. A Godhead existing in perfect community of one, distinct and separate, but one. God the Father. In general terms, the great architect of creation, redemption and consummation who plans, directs and sends. God the Son who, who obeys the Father, accomplishes redemption and with the Father sends the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit who brings to completion uh, the work planned by the Father and begun by the Son 
and in all things works for the glory of the Son. This God, this triune God, out of the overflow uh, of this God's own delight and perfections and joy within himself, you know, something that an impersonal force or singularity cannot know or experience, freely, lovingly created all that there is to share and enjoy a relationship of praise and worship as God does. All the fundamentals of the universe, from the craziest cosmos uh, to the tiniest atom, are not merely a direct declaration of power, are not a byproduct of, of warring factions that need help to keep things in order. It, it's not boredom that saw this come about, or loneliness or neediness, but rather it's an overflow of the sheer joy and delight of God and the desire to share that joy and delight. As Tim Keller says, only a triune God would call us to converse with him because he wants to share the joy he has. Therefore, prayer, therefore, is our way of entering into the happiness of God, that God has himself, a God of unlimited power, of unlimited might, of unlimited wisdom, exercises all that he is to share the delight of God's joy with us. To worship and to pray to a God who is not a triune God is to worship and pray to a God that is not the God of Scripture and is no God at all. When Jesus signs off on his earthly ministry and he commissions the apostles and then by extension you and I, probably not quite the same ministry that the apostles had, to establish and plant the church through the gospel, a gospel that was planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son and applied by the Spirit uh, and vivified in our lives. It is the Trinitarian God Christians are to identify with in their baptism into the church, into the church family, uh, into the family of God. So does it matter then how we pray to this Trinitarian God. If God is one God, three equal persons, is it appropriate to pray equally to all three? Or should we only pray to one or two? How do we pray in such a way that we fully share in the joy of God through prayer? Well, I think that we find the answer to that in an almost universal pattern of prayer that we get from the New Testament. And I say almost universal because there are some instances outside this pattern. But the pattern that we see in Scripture is that when you pray, it is by the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, to the Father. Or you want to flip it over to the Father in the name of Jesus, uh, by the Spirit. Now, does that mean that it's I don't know, umbilical, inappropriate, even sinful to pray to the Holy Spirit or to Jesus? I don't think so. John Piper, who has written extensively and, and preached extensively about this, says that from time to time, Maranatha, the, the prayer at the end of Revelation, Lord Jesus come is, is not a bad prayer. And the Holy Spirit, fall on us, grant us a fresh baptism is not a, a bad prayer to pray but he says in general pray to the father but occasionally 
to express their personhood or your own love for them, telling the Spirit, telling the Son that you love them, that you would like them to come in full measure is indeed a good thing. In Ephesians 2.18, just after Paul is proclaiming the immeasurable riches of God to us in Jesus, Paul very neatly sums up the pattern and the posture of prayer, of our access to God, if you like. Paul says, through him, that's Jesus, we both, and what he means here is Jewish believers and Gentile believers, you know, all of us together, the people of God, through him have access in one spirit to the Father. What Paul is saying is, as Christians, uh, by the, what Paul is saying is, Christians, by the, come in prayer by the Spirit, uh, through the Son, we have access to the Father. The entire experience, all the activity of the Christian faith is lived by the Spirit, uh, through the Son, and to the Father. And when it comes to prayer, a Trinitarian God, that's the pattern. That's what we find. That's how we pray to uh, our God. We pray by the Spirit. The activity of Christian prayer is by the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian to totally redefine a relationship of a person with God. Namely, the Holy Spirit confirms our place in his family, causing us to approach God um, as Father, not as judge, as we saw in Galatians series. We have been adopted with a sonness that gives us the same access that Jesus has. Not only are we forgiven by the judge, but we are, we are loved by the Father. And Paul has said that these experienced realities of the truth of God's love to us in Jesus become the fuel and the motivation for prayer and they're experienced by, in incorporation with the Spirit. Have a look at what Paul writes in Romans 8, probably the high point of all of Paul's writing. Paul says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but have received a spirit of adoption as sons. And if you're in the Galatians series, you know that word sons is about inheritance and position. It's not a gender thing. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. By the Spirit we are adopted as sons. And the Spirit makes that a felt reality in our hearts so that we now approach God as Abba, as Dad. Through the Spirit we have relational assurance. We have confidence that the great judge is now our Father. Paul speaks of the nature and the activity of that assurance in Romans 8.16. The Spirit then bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul is saying two things. He is saying that by the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father, and by the Spirit our own soul, our own spirit are assured of the fact that we are children of God. The very activity of prayer that approaches God as Father is like a warm blanket for our souls. But the Spirit doesn't just press play and leave you and I to it. The Spirit continues to enable and support prayer, even in circumstances and environments that you don't feel too prayerful in. Look further down, down into verses 23 and into 26. And Paul writes, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the 
for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Look at what Paul says in verses 26. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know, when we do not know what we ought to pray. When our prayer life is by the Spirit, the one who illuminates truth and applies these realities of the gospel to our hearts, we are comforted in our incompleteness and in our weaknesses. The presence of the Spirit assures us that we are children of God and we joyfully await that in its fullness. We don't yet know it fully. We long for it. And the Spirit continues to remind us that even though we're still broken and we're jacked up and we do the odd crazy things, you are still a son, a daughter of God. And so we long for a day when when that's not challenged. While we wait, we still experience things that challenge us. We find ourselves out of our depth, not knowing how to pray, not knowing what to pray. could be the news of a critically ill friend in an ICU ward. Do I pray for deliverance from the sickness? Do I pray for endurance through the sickness? Do I pray for both? Do I pray for something entirely different? You see, horrific stories, horrific news. And you think, Lord, I just I don't know where to start with this, this whole situation. Sam Elbury uses the analogy of a golfing instructor instructor to kind of explain this passage who kind of wraps themselves around the student and as they play the shot you can't tell who it is that took the shot as we pray in our weakness and in our confusion the spirit does not stand back and say you know you suck at this you're pretty bad at this the spirit comes alongside and prays with us and prays for us and Romans 8.27, we see that as the Spirit does that, it does that in a way so that our prayers line up with God's will. And he who searches the heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is not some kind of magic spell. This is the Spirit taking the knowledge of the gospel that you already know and applying it to your soul as you pray to comfort you in your weakness, in in your insecurities. And as Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, that he will come as a comforter and as a help, and when he comes, he will help you recall truth. He will help you recall what you have already put into your soul through the gospel, through reading your Bible. So prayer in all its movements is by the Spirit. And then we pray through the Son or in the name of Jesus. Often this phrase is tacked on to the end of the prayer like it's some kind of magical incantation, some kind of ritual, most of the time sadly without pausing to consider the incredible reality that this phrase is for us. Sometimes I think we just, in Jesus' name, we just kind of hope that if we throw that on the end, because we've done that in the power of Jesus' name, we can manipulate God into what we're praying for. In John 17, we get a window into the prayer life of Jesus who is in prayer and as he is, he prays for you and I in verses 22 through to 26. And the prayer that Jesus prays is that because of what Jesus has done for the glory of the Father on our behalf, those who have trusted in this work of Jesus and have applied that to their lives, 
by the Spirit would enjoy the same access, the same relationship, the same love that is between the Son and the Father, that they would enjoy as they come to the Father in the name of the Son, that they would enjoy all that the Son and the Father enjoy as they come in the name of the Son. When we come to the Father under the name of Jesus, we come with the same access and intimacy because of Jesus' existing relationship, because of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. We pray in the name of Jesus. It's not a magic spell, but it is the basis of our approach. And in his name, and because of what he has done, we are treated as though we are him. Kind of like when you get one of those VIP passes that allows you to, I don't know, if it's at a movie, at a concert, you can do whatever the band does. I have a little pass that says, you know, Melbourne United say that I'm one of them and so I flash this little pass, I'm treated like I'm the CEO of the company. I go anywhere. It's what the name of Jesus is like as we come into the presence of God. In prayer we come to the Father not by our works, not by anything we've done, by our lives, but by the blood of Jesus. So we should never grovel into that space. And we don't have to try and create some kind of vibe or dynamic. No, we come by the Spirit in the name of Jesus. How very reassuring is that for our prayer life. We just granted access into the presence of God because we are flashing our, our ID card with Jesus. It's not contingent on our goodness or our performance, but on the goodness and the perfect life of Jesus. We have access to the Father as though we are like his Son. And Callas says, we've said this, a dozen times, I reckon. Only a child would dare wake up a king at 3am for a glass of water. And in Jesus' name, we have that kind of access. We pray by the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, and we pray to the Father. In, uh, in Matthew 6, we see this modelled. I think I've written Matthew 7 up there. Jesus' model is, when you pray, say, Our Father, our Father in heaven. Now that doesn't mean, as we've said, that we can't pray to the Spirit. The Spirit is every bit as divine a person as the Father and it doesn't mean that we can't pray to the Son, that we can't pray to Jesus. There are indeed examples in the New Testament of people praying directly to Jesus. We see, we see Stephen in Acts 7 praying to Jesus and, and John at the end of Revelation, that prayer I mentioned earlier, come, Lord Jesus, come and Perhaps even what Paul says at the beginning of Corinthians could be considered a prayer directly to Jesus. He's not saying that we only ever, all the time, pray to the Father, but Jesus is, what Jesus is saying is that we pray mainly to the Father. That's the model of prayer Jesus gives us and it's the model of prayer that we find throughout the whole uh, New Testament. We pray to God because despite uh, our own earthly experiences of a father, God is a good, good father. And he is about our joy and our well-being and our flourishing. And as we pray to the father, we are acknowledging that he is the divine architect over everything, over our lives, over all the things 
that there is and that joy and life are to be found in his presence. And as the prayer that Jesus outlines unfolds in Matthew 6, we see that God is for us. This is a hard image for some of us. Some of us never had a father we could trust all the time, turn to all the time, know that every moment in his presence was going to be for our good. But Jesus wants us to know two things about God as Father. Firstly, this God, this Father is approachable. This Father is accessible, available. And second, that he loves to share his goodness with us. God is a present and good God. In Matthew chapter 7, as Matthew's Gospel moves on, we see, uh, we see just that. Jesus says, If broken and banged up people full of sin can give good things to their children, how much more will a Father in Heaven give good things to those who ask? Side note in this. See how Jesus just assumes we're evil, that we're bad. Jesus acknowledges that there are fathers who are broken, some more than others. And even occasionally, even these fathers can do something nice. But Jesus contrasts God the Father against them to say uh, his kindness, his goodness is not to make up for their poor form or his poor form. He is good all the time. And in his goodness, he is for your ultimate well-being, for your joy. So pray to the Father. Come to the Father. God is good and he loves to provide. He loves to help. He is not irritated when we come to him in need. He is not the, the, the kind of God who, who folds his arms, who, who wags his finger saying, you, you just can't get your life together, can you? No, he loves to be approached. He loves to help. It does not mean that God is some cosmic vending machine wielding out all your worldly desires, even, even the good ones. Again, as Sam Elbury reminds us, that the key thing to remember here is that God is good. And because God is good, he doesn't always give us what we want. We don't know what is good for us all the time. There might be things our hearts are desperately set on. Uh, there might be things that are even morally good, things we feel are just right. Yet there are times when, for the sake of our ultimate goodness, God does not give us what we want. He loves us too much. Tim Keller says in his book on prayer, God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. Our Father is good and he is committed to our ultimate good. For the sake of our ultimate good, he may abruise us in the short term. doesn't give us what we want but he does give us what is good for us. Only a Trinitarian God has the relational structure, for want of a better phrase, to offer meaningful prayer, prayer that is deeply satisfying, prayer that is profoundly confident, prayer that is to the Father who is for our ultimate good. So when we pray, pray by the Spirit, in the name of the Son and all that he has done for us and give us access to our Father in heaven who loves us and is for your good.
And we are going to wrap up right now by spending five minutes of prayer just as you are, where you are. Turn to whoever, sit by yourself. I know some of you are freaking out right now thinking, ah, where's the cup of coffee? We want to be a church that prays. We want to get into this. And we're going to allow you to practice it right now.